You're listening to Around Comics, episode 89. Chicago, this is Around Comics, a roundtable discussing topics in and around the world of comics. I'm your host, Christopher Neesman. I'm joined, as always, by the co-host of the show, Mr. Brian Salazar. Hello. And Mr. Tom Caters. I'm very happy to be here. Really, <laughs> it's it's really fun. Jeez, Tom, you've uh, put on some weight. <laughs> <laughs> I ate Tom Caters. <laughs> Tom wants in here. John Suntress, the man who ate Tom Caters. Hello, I'm Morgan Freeman. That's a Silver Age book. I was there the day that Suntress ate Tom Caters. <laughs> it was the day the Penguins still talk about to, amongst themselves. Them, them, themselves. Towards the pole. How you doing, Johnny? I'm doing fine. <laughs> okay, he doesn't, he doesn't break voice. What a be, professional! Uh, well, as you can tell, uh, uh, Tom is uh, taking the night off. He's uh, he's filing taxes, I believe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> poor guy. Ouch, poor bastard. So, uh, so John's going to help us out a little bit. Uh, we're going to be talking with uh, uh, writer, editor, letterer, creator extraordinaire, Mr. Richard Starkins. Animal lover. Animal lover, uh, Mr. Richard Starkins, in just a couple moments. Uh, I assume. You would think. <clears throat> I believe he's a vegetarian. Is he truly? I believe, yeah. I believe Richard Starkin is a vegetarian. I believe I read that in an interview with him somewhere. Well, there you go. And I'm sure we'll learn all about that (laughs) and more in a couple moments. But first, I'd like to let you know that this episode of Around Comics is sponsored by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades.com would like to welcome Richard Starkings to the show and let all our listeners know that they have both of the critically acclaimed Hit Flash hardcover editions discounted by 35%. You can now follow the Eisner Award-winning adventures of futuristic detective Hit Flask and the Elephant Men for just $19.47 per volume. Remember that InStockTrades.com is your source for trade paperbacks, deluxe hardcovers, essentials, showcases, archives, absolute editions, omnibus editions, and more. All at great discounted prices. And all orders over $50 ship free. And thank you to the fine folks at InStockTrades.com. I actually uh, just put in the order for my Volume 1 of Hip Flask. And, uh, I have to do. I was going to do the same thing today. I didn't, but I well, didn't plan I'm, on it. So I'm going deal, on my, on my belated honeymoon, so I'm getting all my, my reading stuff together. So I got uh, the <laughs> absolute long Halloween. Chris, um, I'm ready. <laughs> Wait, honey, uh, Captain Adam's really involved in something very serious here in the Wildstorm universe. I have to get this uh, Except, settled yeah. before I'm I come I'm finally going to read uh, Adam Strange's uh, Planet Heist. That's Andy Diggle at his best. Yeah, so, and, uh, and, uh, the hip flask. And I've got, uh, <laughs> honey, this is just for the plane, I swear <laughs> to God. <laughs> What's in that other suitcase? What a you nerd! Know, what you know, know, you know, no, I knew there was. A, I knew there was a reason that Marta, and Marta invited me on the honeymoon. I was wondering what it was you for. You talk no. to him. I can't even deal. She with actually, him. she she has forbade me from bringing the the laptop. So no, I can't no say computer. I blame her. Dude, you're a geek, <laughs> you're dude. Your honeymoon. You're going to a resort, a Caribbean beach resort, and you're worried about a laptop and Jesus. comic books. Well, how am I going to post on the forum? Uh, I, you, you get you just uh, had give sex. Me, <laughs> marriage is consummated. Give me Thought your. You'd like to know? There's give, a nice thread. Give me your man card if you even have. Way one. to go! You the man. You are. No, I did. Uh, uh, that like has a comment. I, I I did I did buy a, a, a big boy book. I'm, I'm going to read uh, Men of Tomorrow while I'm on a vacation. Jesus, so. man. <laughs> what? Men of Tomorrow is great. Yeah, I'm going to read it on the Gerard beach. Gerard Jones, excellent. I, I'm going to be there for. I'm going to be there for like eight days. I can't have sex for the entire eight. Why days. not? It's your honeymoon, man. <laughs> I'm a dork. That's why I I can't be separated from the comic. Right. Right. It's, right. No, it's Men of Tomorrow. Sorry, Marta. 
You should have honestly. After this is what you married. Get get Gerard Jones. He's I, great. I, I would, he's I, excellent. I, I love what I the, the I, I'm better tomorrow. Gerard Jones. Oh. Excellent book. <laughs> I haven't read. Well, it folks, around comics was recorded every Friday at seven o'clock at Dark Tower Comics. I'm just thinking what Tom would have said for that entire thing. Um, but we are recording. Jesus, at 7 that's what he would have said. Dark Tower Comics wow, and Collectibles, located at 4835 Northwestern Avenue in Chicago. If you're in the area, please drop by. We would love to meet you. Don't forget your around comics experience isn't complete until you've read this week's Long Box of Love. Each Thursday episode of Around Comics is a wonderfully handcraft webcomic from Brian Bowles. Check it out every Thursday at www.aroundcomics.com. Damn it, I knew I forgot something. Uh, I forgot to put up last week's or this week. I, I, uh, I need to apologize to uh, to Brian and anybody else that uh, tried to email us in the last couple of weeks. Apparently, with the server switch over, our email was a little messed up. So yeah, we're still having problems. I think of like people are, that are sending us emails and we're not getting them or something. I don't know. Something is going. Something Bri- weird Brian, is going on. Brian thought that we didn't like the strip yeah, anymore. He thought we were just like what? ignoring what? him and just we didn't what? want to. And, talk. We, and, we, and we thought it was like, man, he must need a break because he's yeah. not sending. You know, so maybe he just you know is taking some time off. And okay, that's fine. So you know, Brian, we love the strip. Everybody loves the strip, and we're going to get those caught up. And anybody that has emailed us and we haven't gotten back with you, we may not have gotten the email. So yeah, so try we again. again. You can come except for the spooky guy in Canada we got the email yeah. <laughs> uh, we could uh, you can come on our forum and post uh, if you're a member of the forum you can always send us a private message or um, we have other email addresses if you really need to get a hold of us but you know there you go there you go all right well this week's guest has been a writer editor and acclaimed font designer starting in the UK with 2000 AD and moving on to Marvel UK as an editor Richard Starking soon turned his attention to the development of computer-based comic book lettering since 1992 Comicraft has been a leader in lettering and custom font design it's nearly impossible to walk into a comic shop and find books that haven't been touched by Comicraft's influence Starting out as a mascot for Comicraft, the character Hip Flask is now the title character in his own series, as well as appearing in The Elephant Men, a dark and gritty tale set in the future where the lines between man and animal are blurred. The world of The Elephant Men has become one of Around Comics' favorite titles, and Around Comics is happy to welcome Richard Starkings. Oh, Richard, uh, welcome to the show, and thank you for being on Around Comics. You're welcome. Good to be here. It's great to have you. I, I, you, you have a very long and storied history, and I guess we should probably start at the beginning with, um, I guess, uh, 2000 AD is where you got your start with comics? Um, not really. The first job I got was on a comic book called The Wizard and Chips Holiday Special. <laughs> I, oh, um, of course. Oh, yeah, I remember that. You've all read it. <laughs> Captain Kidd was the uh, strip that I lettered in there. Um, cut a long story short, I'd written to a lettering artist who did work on 2000 AD. He lettered Rogue Trooper back in the day, and his name was Bill Nuttall. Cool. Um, actually, the book that we created, Comic Book Lettering the Comic Craft Way, is dedicated to him. He died a couple of three years ago. So... Um, I wrote to Bill because I really felt that um, if I wanted to get into comic book lettering and I wrote to someone in America, their experience wouldn't be appropriate to the British market where I was more likely to get work. Bill's style had some similarity, I felt, to Tom Wozakowski. He had a very crisp uh, lettering style that um, I wanted to emulate, so I wrote to him, and it turned out to be a very good uh, choice because he wrote me back. um, Not only did he write a letter, he sent me some samples in order to sort of point me in the right direction in terms of how to improve my lettering work. And he sent the samples that I sent in response to that to a gentleman by the name of Bob Painter, P-A-Y-N-T-E-R, who was in charge of assigning lettering at um, IPC magazines, which is the, at the time, was the parent company of 2000 AD. So I got a job through them and then heard nothing again. I did a three-page strip. It wasn't a great job. It did get published, though. 
uh, and I heard no more. In the interim, there was an ad for a job as art assistant, meaning basically a paste artist mm -hmm. at Marvel UK in uh, one of the quality newspapers, The Guardian. And um, I applied for that job, initially didn't get it, but was offered some lettering work on Transformers when Simon Furman had just started writing Transformers wow. aeons ago. <laughs> um, Simon's been writing Transformers uh, longer than most of you have lived. <laughs> so um, I started picking up freelance work at Marvel UK, and I think got my first future shot from 2000 AD at, at around the same time. And there was one other job at that time for a magazine called Lookin', Mm -hmm. which was a weekly comic that ran two-page strips based on TV shows like Six Million Dollar Man and um, Charlie's Angels and Buck Rogers. And they had a lot of top artists working for them because they paid top rates because they were funded by TV Times, which is like a TV guide magazine in mm -hmm. England. Um, I did a two-page strip which was the story of a pop group called Buck Fizz. I lettered that, and uh, even though I got paid, much to my shame, a much better letterer was asked to re-letter it. So oh, those were my beginnings. Well, you know, a lot, of, a lot of folks, whenever they start reading comics, will, and, and, and whenever they start to aspire to get into the business, either want to be artists or writers. What was it about... Pencilers, no. Uh, Pencilers, well, or <laughs> inkers, or, you know, even... But you, Which are all artists. You, you rarely hear about people that's like, I really want to be a colorist, or I really want to be a letterer. What was it about lettering that you know, appealed to you and, and you saw as you know, something that you wanted to do? Um... That's, that's kind of hard to say, but I will tell you that I never have and never will think of myself as a letterer. Uh, I think of myself as someone who makes comics. I don't, I don't even think of myself as a writer or a designer, um, and I, I have drawn my own cartoon strip. Um, but the truth was, there was an article in Warrior magazine, Dead Skin's uh, black and White Monthly that launched Viva Vendetta, uh -huh. Axel Press Button, and Marvel, Marvel Man. Man. Yeah. And there was a How to Get Into Comics. And one of the things that they said was, you're much likely to get in uh, as a lettering artist than as an artist, writer, or uh, any other sort of uh, discipline. So I thought, easy way in. Sounds good <laughs> to me. <laughs> so, um, I would say that it was a question of how do I get my foot in, my door, in the door. I really did want to work in comics, and from the age of about 16 and 17, I felt it was all or nothing to work in comics. I really couldn't imagine myself being a doctor or a uh, bricklayer or any job in between there. I really wanted to work in comics. And so, I moved down to London... Um, started lettering um, uh, without being paid for a company called Harrier Comics, which was part of the Black and White explosion in 1983, mm -hmm. 84. They did a book called HMS Conqueror, one called Red Fox. Um, they did a whole bunch of books that ultimately died a horrible death. <laughs> they were all launched on the back of the sort of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Cerebus, Black and White boom. Yep. So I was basically finding any opportunity to improve my lettering skills and um, finally managed to get um, get a job, a paying job. So... Um, Hey everybody, it's Sal. Uh, just wanted to step in here for a second. Uh, at this part of the interview, Richard actually had to step away from the phone for a moment uh, to answer the door. He thought it was the postman, but as we'll find out next, it was actually something a little bit different. That was actually something much more exciting than uh, a delivery. That was the police department. Get out of here. What'd you do? I had a report that the transient uh, was was in the bushes, possibly around my house. So, oh, God. Uh, I had the door wide open because I like to hear when the mail or, you know, we have my studios on the back of my house. Sometimes deliveries are made at the front, so I leave the front door open. So they were worried that the guy might have... Uh, come in and started helping himself to my valuables. <laughs> he was, no. he, was he stealing your fonts? 
Obviously, he's in cahoots with you guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You knew that I'd be on the phone. That's caters. It was Tom. Yeah. Five thirty and six thirty. That's where our other host the, is. The transient uh, pram outside doesn't uh, fool me. <laughs> Damn, well, boiled again. If the, if the line goes dead, we'll know why. We'll call. We'll call the nine one one. The, the L, LA All police. Right. <laughs> anyway, where were we? Well, you know, one thing I wanted to uh, ask you about, and, and I had read that you. You kind of start whenever you're like 17 or so working on like a Doctor Who fanzine. I did a I self-published uh, four, five Doctor Who fanzines between the, I think I was 16 or 17 right up until um, my early 20s. I I did a Doctor Who fanzine uh, and really for me it was an opportunity to draw. Uh, the covers of the fanzine, and also I did a cartoon strip uh, that was published in there. After three issues, uh, other fanzines picked up my comic strip, and I, and I submitted it to them. So, uh, but but that was, those were in the days I used. The first fanzine we did was done on one of those um, duplicating presses mm -hmm. using a um, a fluid. I've forgotten the name of it, but. Um, a, du a duplex machine, yeah, or the duplicator. It sounds like it's one of those old things at school for duplicating papers. It was called a duplicator. It was, mm -hmm. it was in the days before uh, photocopiers. With the uh, purple ink, yeah, uh, purple pa ink, yeah. Oh, sure, we which, had which actually turned black, like mimeograph. Yeah. Uh, mimeograph. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, what we had mimeograph. That's what it was. And the back paper when we did mimeograph <laughs> back in '48. That was yeah. the only way to go. The type. The pages, which actually taught me a lot about um, setting right. type. Mm -hmm. Yes. You had to type everything on this paper that, that basically the typewriter's keys cut a hole in the paper. That's why a lot of the E's would fill in, <laughs> because they couldn't hold the, the counter of the E. So that was when I was 17, which is nearly 30 years ago. And um, uh, I did three issues while I was at school, and then I did uh, another... Uh, it was sort of fan fiction uh, compilation when I was at college, and then I did a collection of my Doctor Who cartoons uh, when I lived in London in eighty three, eighty four, eighty four, I think. So, um, so and those were sold at the Westminster Mart at the fan fiction table run by Paul Gravett, who's now. Um, something of a comics historian in England. He's written two books, one called Graphic Novels and one called uh, British Comics, I think, recently. Yeah. And Paul Gravett was a patron of up-and-coming young comic creators uh, at the Westminster Mart, which is a small convention, basically. It's a, um, a gathering of creators that happened once a month in London. Wow. And... Uh, you would often see everybody working comics in the pub next door. <laughs> so you'd be there with Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons, Kevin O'Neill, Mick McMahon, Brian Bolland, um, younger guy, Warren Ellis, I think, used to be there, uh, Glenn Fabry, Good God. Kev Hopgood. It was, it was one of those rare occasions where you didn't realize at the time that it was sort of a seminal moment in comics. Eddie Campbell would be there. Cool. And, in fact, Eddie Campbell drew a little panel of the creators in the pub at, at uh, Westminster uh, in one of his books. I don't know if it was the, um, the, art, the Life of the Artist. No, oh, portrait, um, portrait of the Artist. Portrait of the Artist. Is it Portrait of the Artist? Yeah, I... It was, it was, the, it was the... Now, How to Be an Artist... Well, his latest one of, one of his books, he he referred to that, and um, I actually referred to it in an interview, and we started a whole thread on on the pulse, I think it was, um, and it was strange to me. Everybody that that remembers those days remembers them very fondly. Um, Phil Elliott, Mike Collins, um, there was a lot. Dave, Dave McKean was there, telling everybody how he didn't want to draw Judge Dredd. <laughs> uh, it, it was very strange looking back how many sort of giants in the industry were there and how important it was to sort of get together every month and talk comics and plan the so, plan the invasion is that is that's what you guys were really before doing before you guys plan, came over and took over American British American comics <laughs> that's 
what we were plotting. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. How to put all you guys out of work. Like Ocean's Eleven, you guys unfurl the map. It's like, all right, here, here's, here's how we're moving in. This is New York. Stan Lee is but dead. Yeah, I'm the unsung hero of the British invasion because a lot of people don't know I'm British. And True. in fact, some British peak creators who've worked on 2000 AD that I've got to know since I lived here have called me... Um, and not realized I was English. <laughs> you know, some people think that I was an American creator living in England, and now people think that I'm an American. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's kind of one of those ironies that uh, uh, even though I sort of moved into the American industry and, and, and made waves, um, because I did so at a sort of auxiliary creator level, um, uh, it's not sort of uh, remarked upon, but I, I definitely think that that sort of British wave of talent benefited me because uh, I got to know Brian Bolland, and because I was cheeky enough to ask him at a convention if anyone he knew was lettering the killing joke, he asked me, which was my intention all along, of course. <laughs> um, and when I moved to America, when I when I came here on a visitor's visa in 89, I, all I had to do was tell people I left the killing joke and they gave me work. <laughs> so that was immensely important to me. If Alan Bryan had made that Atlantic crossing, I wouldn't have been able to make it so easily. Wow. That's really cool. Well, I, before, we, before we get into your, your time in America, I was curious about your, your Marvel UK editing and how that came about, what titles you were presiding over. Well, I, you know, I got the job... Uh, as an art assistant, mm -hmm. that was, I was pasting up the editorial pages and making the legend corrections on Spider-Man Comics Weekly um, before that ultimately folded and we started running Secret Wars reprints. Was Spider-Man Comics Weekly just reprinting uh, the Marvel American uh, story? Yeah, it's okay. continuously, you know, the Marvel UK, which is now Panini UK, um, has always reprinted Spider-Man because Spider-Man's always sold pretty well mm -hmm. as a reprint. But the continuity is often all over the place because if you're printing, printing a story weekly and you run 11 pages of Spider-Man in each issue, then you need two Spider-Man books. It doesn't necessarily mean that you picked up Spectacular Spider-Man at a convenient point in the continuity that marries together with Amazing Spider-Man. Okay. So it was a real juggling act to pick stories and make them fit, chop them in half, run a tagline, have a splash page for the next issue. Um, you, we learned a lot simply because we were chopping and changing things, um, creating new covers. Sometimes we'd have to create a cover from a splash page. Sometimes we'd have to pick and choose images from the strip to make a cover. And sometimes we would commission a cover. But we didn't have much of a budget for that, and uh, management was dead set against it. So as editorial assistants and art assistants, we had to be really creative. Uh, plus, these were pre-computer days, so we were working with a stat machine. We were casting off type, getting, sending it out to a typesetter. Um, so I, I learned a lot. Um, I learned a lot about the cost of Letraset, which was ex extremely significant to me later. Um, and I really had to do everything. And ultimately, I became uh, an editor on Action Force, which was a relaunch of G.I. Joe. Okay. And at, at that point, because Transformers had been so successful, um, at its height, Transformers was a fortnightly, which means every other week. Mm -hmm. um, which sold 127,000 copies a week, which was right up there with 2000 AD at the time. So it was making so much money, they started generating material, which is what brought me in as a letterer, and what started Simon's career at Marvel UK as a writer. And um, from there, when we started doing G.I. Joe, it was taken for granted that we would originate, I think, 22 pages of new material a month which we were printing in each weekly five or six pages a week. And in the back, we would reprint things like the Michael Golden G.I. Joe Annual, a lot of the Herb Trimp stuff, anything that we could 
shoehorn into our continuity, we would use. But as with Transformers, uh, on the Action Force G.I. Joe book, everything was tied into product launches. And product launches by Hasbro for G.I. Joe and Transformers in England were not the same as they were in America. They would launch different items from the range at different times, which was good because it, it meant we had to originate material. So it's kind of strange that a lot of creators in Britain got their uh, first breaks simply because of Hasbro's launch schedule. Um, but I, I, I edited Action Force for a year before it folded. We did 52 issues, I think, and then it folded. And then I worked on Real Ghostbusters, which was another fortnightly, every two weeks. Um, on, on that magazine, on, on Action Force, I... Uh, it was always hard to bring in new talent. Uh, we had a guy called Jeff Senior working for us who was amazing, very fast, very capable, very strong artwork. He did most of his work on Transformers. Uh, he did a little bit of work for me on Action Force. Uh, but I was constantly looking around for new talent. Uh, one of the first guys I had was Brian Hitch. Wow. 16, 16 years old. Whatever uh, happened to that guy? <laughs> I have no idea. I've, I've heard that he's just as hard to work with now as he is then. <laughs> uh, at 16, he was very, um, very strong-willed and very capable, but also a lot of self-doubt at that time. Of course, at 16, when you start to earn a living straight out of school, I think there was a lot of pressure on him. He was still living with his parents at the time. Dougie Braithwaite I hired when he was 15. He's awesome. Um, he did a Thundercat story for me when he was 15. Um, not only is he a great artist, he's one of the sweetest people in comics, you ask anybody. A real gentleman, yeah. Yeah, really sweet, sweet guy. Uh, Andy Lanning sure. <laughs> uh, started working for me on Ghostbusters. He's a very talented penciler. He's made his name as a writer, as an inker. Um, his style is very cartoony, which worked perfectly for Ghostbusters. Mm -hmm. He's never really had a break as a penciler in America. Uh, Anthony um, Williams, who's, who did some work on Gambit and some other X-Men books, started working for me on Action Force also. Um, Dan Abnett was my assistant editor on Ghostbusters, and his first script was actually illustrated by Brian Hitch. That was, I think, Brian's first story also. So there was a lot. It was, it was great to be able to originate material because you were able to um, break new talent. Unfortunately, most new talent headed straight for 2080. Sure. Uh, because the licensed properties were not exciting or interesting um, to artists, and 2080 paid better. And, of course, the karmic retribution there was anybody that went to 2008 eventually went to Vertigo. So the British invasion was basically a brain drain uh, from our point of view as, as British publishers. Hi, my name is Tony Danza, and you're listening to Around Comics. Hi, my name is John Romita Jr., and you are listening to Around Comics. Well, talk about a little bit uh, of how you went from the Marvel UK to, to coming over to the States and and you know, getting involved there and then uh, starting up Comic Craft. When, or, even when we were working on Transformers and G.I. Joe, uh, Simon and I particularly were, would always talk about doing an American format comic. Uh, Tom DeFalco was actually sent to Marvel UK in about 87, I think, and ostensibly because he was helping us he was a guiding light for us. I later heard that he and Jim Shooter were having a lot of arguments, and they were sort of uh, sent to the corners of their room to cool off. <laughs> so Tom was a really uh, big influence on us. And in fact, Tom was very impressed with the weekly format and particularly enjoyed 2000 AD. Went back to Marvel and started Marvel uh, Presents, the uh, fortnightly um, American Marvel book, which... Nobody remembers except for Weapon X. Weapon X was serialized in Marvel Presents. I wow. think was it called Marvel Presents? Yes. Sure. Yeah, Marvel, Marvel, Marvel Comics Presents, yes. It was three eight-page stories. 
every two weeks. So, um, but while we, while Tom was with us at Marvel UK, he really encouraged us to do an American style monthly. So I was working for editor Ian Rimmer at the time, and Ian tried to set the ball rolling. Ultimately, Ian um, left the company, and it was sort of dropped in my lap. And I went to meet with John Wagner and Alan Grant, who were working together as a writing team at the time, writing Judge Dredd and Strontium Dog for 2000 AD. And um, the, the management at, at Marvel UK wanted to do a American-style monthly, but they really wanted to go with top British talent. So we spoke with John and Alan, who at that time were sort of stung by the fact that they didn't own Judge Dredd. This was before Wagner made a deal with uh, Fleetway and, and got a, uh, a piece of Judge Dredd. So they didn't want to do a book for us unless they had a very, very, either they were very well paid or they had a share in the character. And Marvel UK was not willing to do that. Mm-hmm. So um, I turned around and uh, started working with Simon Furman. Uh, about some ideas that he had. And that produced a comic called Dragon's Claws. Originally it was called Dragon's Teeth, but we were sued for the name and we had to change it overnight to Dragon's Claws. Dragon's Claws led to Death's Head. Death's Head was a character Simon had introduced in Transformers. We spun Death's Head out of Dragon's Claws. And then we did an epic book called The Sleeves Brothers, um, which Andy Lanning drew and uh, John Carnell, who was a young writer that Al- Andy had introduced to me um, and was very talented, full of ideas. So they came up with this, ultimately, ironically, creator-owned book called The Sleaze Brothers, um, which Archie Goodwin allowed us to publish with the Epic imprint. So in the last sort of year I was at Marvel UK, I initiated these three monthly books, which all folded. One, Dragon's Claws and Death's Head got to issue 10, and uh, Sleaze Brothers was a six-issue miniseries. So we sort of broke into the American market and then shut the door behind us. <laughs> uh, and they did try some other projects, like a magazine called Strip, which reprinted Martial Law and had some creator-owned projects, but there was never again a creator-owned Marvel UK title. I was also the editor of the comic strip in Doctor Who uh, monthly, and um, I sort of broke with the tradition of working with one writer and one artist, and I brought in Grant Morrison wrote a story for me, Brian Hitch illustrated that story, Uh, Alan Grant wrote a story, um, Buggy Braithwaite drew a story that John Connell and I wrote. Lee Sullivan, who was an artist that went on to do Tech World from Marvel, um, all worked on that strip with me. So in my last year, I sort of was in a very um, uh, luxurious position of working with, on a lot of projects, a lot of original projects at a company that was primarily known for reprinting American material. (laughs) Um, But my boss at the time felt, I believe, a little threatened by the successes I was having, and we butted heads, and I decided to quit. So that was 89. Now, one of the reasons I decided to quit was uh, my girlfriend was from San Gabriel in California, and uh, she'd come to work at Marvel for six months while she was traveling and went home. So I decided to chase her out here, and that's how I ended up in America. It's always about a girl. I don't, I don't see why an Englishman would like to go to Southern California. That just, <laughs> don't for a girl. I don't understand <laughs> that, you know, the beach, the sun. Well, I'm sure you can figure out why. <laughs> um, but I, I decided to stay six... Stay, I, actually, I was only going to stay a couple of weeks in New York, but um, uh, things didn't work out the way I expected, and I ended up staying in New York seven months. And it was actually very fortuitous because 
I became very good friends with Bobby Wright, who was an editor and colorist at Marvel in the 80s. Uh, very acerbic personality, but with a heart of gold. And he said I could sleep on a sofa for a week. And two months later, <laughs> I found myself my own apartment. But um, if he hadn't uh, really sort of supported me and uh, uh, basically enjoyed having me around and and giving me work, I mean, we'd go back to his apartment in the evening and he would force me to letter strips that he needed the following day. So, uh, and that was what, back in the hand lettering days. So I got to be known around the Marvel US offices. I got to know editorial like Tom DeFalco had taken over from Shooter in 89 or I think I think maybe 80 mm -hmm. I got to know Bobby Chase Mark Grunwald Archie Goodwin I already knew but um, I would see those guys around the office and um, learned a lot more about how Marvel US worked versus Marvel UK which was insane uh, there's a lot more pressure on editors of Marvel UK um, I, I would say that editors at Marvel US have twice the workload that's comfortable for any editor in any comic book company. So I could see the sort of crushing deadlines and I could see, I was often there on Friday when Tom DeFarco would just stick his head into people's office and scream at them about how late their book was. <laughs> and it helped me understand why um, a lot of Marvel books were not that good because they were created under such incredible pressure. What, was this at a time when the bullpen was really still in existence before... The bullpen know? was in full swing. Okay. And there were a lot of underpaid, uh, overworked, resentful um, people there at the time. People that I would have run-ins with later when we started doing digital lettering and basically started putting a lot of those bullpenners out of work because a lot of their work was... Uh, pasting up lettering that had been done on vellum. And vellum was a sheet of posh tracing paper, mm -hmm. sure. expensive tracing paper, which you would tape to a Xerox of a page of pencils. Mm -hmm. The page of pencils would have the placements for the lettering, and you would basically letter as if you were lettering on the boards, but on the sheet of vellum. Mm -hmm. That vellum was then sent back to Marvel, or you took it in to the offices, and the bullpenners would paint white out on the back of the balloons, cut them out, and rubber cement them down. So it was a very archaic way of working. Terrified me, because <laughs> it meant that you weren't in control of where the lettering was on the board. At 2000 AD, you lettered on something called patch paper, which is sticky back paper. You lettered on the patch paper, cut out the balloon, stuck it on the actual ink board. At Marvel UK, I actually introduced a sort of American style where you lettered onto the board before it was inked. And then I go to Marvel US and they're doing it completely differently because <laughs> pencilers, inkers and writers are constantly trying to cheat another week out of the schedule and the letters were expected to make it up. Not five or six pages at a time, 22 pages at a time. And I felt I couldn't keep that pace up. So, um, as much as I tried, and I was lettering Sleepwalker and Shield on a monthly basis while I was living in New York, it was hellacious, and I did not like the quality of my lettering as a result, which ultimately started the sort of uh, train of thought that led me to digitize my lettering styles. You know, you're, you're obviously credited with ushering in sort of the digital age of lettering in comics. Um, your name is... It's the, no, no, no. We call it the comic craft age of comics. The comic craft. <laughs> there you go. Was it something that was just a natural progression for you in the industry? Was it just the time, uh, you know, that, that the computers were becoming more of a tool? Or was it sort of a bolt of inspiration that hit you one day? And, and you know, how did that sort of progress of going from hand lettering to let's do this on computers and let's do this uh, digitally come about? Well, a very big part of the equation was I moved to New York. Uh, I did not have a green card. I had a visitor's permit back in the day when you had a six-month visitor's permit. Um, I was uh, working sort of under the table because I had worked freelance for Marvel US while I was in England. So I continued to work for Marvel US as if I was still living in England. In fact, all my checks still had my um, parents' address because <laughs> if they did get mailed, I wanted to be able to find them. 
<laughs> so um, checks were being prepared for me as if they were going to be sent to England, but I would intercept them at accounts, and they knew to hold the check for me. So I was uh, freelancing, but I hadn't decided that I was going to pursue living in America. It was sort of an accidental arrangement. I really thought I was going to be in New York for two weeks max. So I moved out to um, California and continued this arrangement. You know, the checks were being FedExed to me, but they still had an English address on them. So I had to sort of, in pretty short order, sort out what I was going to be doing. And I knew I wanted to work in comics, but I was in California at this time. I chased my girlfriend out here. We ultimately broke up. And um, I was living in uh, El Segundo, all places. I was. I went to the comic book store in Santa Monica, still there, Heidi Hill Comics, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, picked up a copy, uh, ironically, of the Incal, a uh, hardcover edition of the Incal by Graffiti Designs. And I was uh, very pleased to discover that they were based in Anaheim, which was just 40 minutes drive away from me. So I called up and asked them if they had any jobs. Well, unbeknownst to me, Bob Shrek had just quit working graffiti designs, and Bob Chapman was sort of looking for someone else. So I made my sort of working situation clear to him, and he offered to sponsor me for a work permit, which he did. And ultimately, uh, I acquired a work permit um, working for uh, graffiti designs. So while I was there, I was doing T-shirt designs. I was actually numbering books back in the day when Bob did uh, hardcover editions of Dark Knight, American Flag, Moon Shadow, Electro Assassin, all the Akira books and the, all the Mobius books. So he was preparing his newsletter called Shirt Tales on a Mac computer. And I was like, oh, great. I'd love to work, learn how to use a Mac. So Bob... He only had one Mac at the time, which was at home. And I used to uh, go to his home in the evenings and uh, figure out how to do the newsletter with him each month, uh, which was more difficult than it might sound because I never read a manual. I've I still never read a manual for a Macintosh <laughs> computer. Um, but the Quark Express program he was using was fairly intuitive once you got used to it. And um, I started to know my way around on a Mac. I then uh, found out that some friends of mine from Marvel US had moved out to California. Mark Siri, uh, who was previously an assistant to Ralph Macchio, Dave Wall, who went on to work at Top Cow, Steve Busolado, who uh, eventually set up Electric Crayon with Mark Siri. And Mark Siri said to me, you should digitize your uh, type, type styles. And I said, I don't know how to do that. He said, my friend Neil can teach you how to do that, which he did. I used to go out to their house. There was four people from New York, most of whom had worked at Marvel US, living in a house in West LA. And they had two or three Mac computers. And uh, Neil would teach me every Monday evening how to use Photographer and how to use Illustrator. <laughs> and this is what what year is this? Ninety one, I think. Ninety one, ninety two. Okay, I mean, so it's I, I'm I'm an art director by trade, so I can kind of you know place myself in that time and, and kind of think about what what Macs were there and what the I software was. I had a Mac was. 2CI. Okay, <laughs> wow. That was nice. my first computer. High power. I'm, I'm, I don't even want to think about what how much memory it had. <laughs> I, I would probably sixteen, probably eh, no, maybe not even. It, it would probably be two, maybe two meg of RAM and like a yeah. hundred meg hard drive, maybe, <laughs> yeah. maybe. Um, we had to, we had to work in Illustrator and Template. Sure. You know that sort of outline style. Mm-hmm. So it was very crude and it was very difficult. And, and and the one thing that a lot of people forget now that it's so easy to do digital lettering and work in Illustrator is how difficult it was when I started. So I had to have some fierce determination just just to create a single font, um, let alone letter the books in, in Illustrator. So, um, actually, I, was, I think I was working in Quark at the time, which was not the best program to work in, Quark <laughs> Express. Not at all. So 
you know, I was working with um, copies of the programs that, that I begged, stole, or, or borrowed, and um, uh, just bending my head around a Macintosh, which, it has to be said, is very intuitive to work with. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I could ever have got far working on a Windows-based uh, PC. So this is 91, 92. Uh, 92, I hired my first assistant um, full-time, John J.G. Rochelle, who's still working with me today. He worked from his home in Santa Barbara. Um, he was extremely enthusiastic, stopped me working in Cork Express, started me working in Illustrator, started scanning artwork so that we could actually see what we were lettering over, because we were still eyeballing. We were looking at the artwork, lettering it in Illustrator, comparing it to the, the art, literally holding up the art to the screen to see if it would fit. <laughs> um, and we basically, between us, created the method that everybody pretty much uses today to letter comic books. Um, that's why comic book lettering is predominantly Mac-based, is because we were predominantly Mac-based. And a lot of people learned from us. Uh, stole from us. A, a lot of letterers called me, hand, pen letterers who were scared of what the innovations would mean to them. I got a lot of phone calls in the first year or two. People I never heard from again, uh, basically picking, picking my mind and trying to figure out how to do what we were doing. Hi, this is Andy Parks. You are listening to Around Comics. I was going to ask you because I, I, I was, uh, uh, I'm a web designer now, but I was a graphic designer at that time. And I remember uh, when, you know, when Comicraft, the first fonts came out, I remember I was working in, in, in Fontographer and, and Quark and all those programs. But I also, I also remember at the time, you know, digital clip art was very, you know, it first started to come around. And there were so many people that were against digital clip art uh, because they thought it, it was putting illustrators out of work. And, and I guess it was to some degree. Or, but I was just wondering, did you get, a, I, I'm assuming you got a lot of that same sort of attitude from people that you We, were we got um, castized, demonized, outcast. We were, um, as Mark Grunwald put it to me once, I was the Antichrist. <laughs> of the um, there were, you know, Kenny Lopez, who, who's a great guy, and he actually buys fonts from me now. He actually was telling everybody that I was making a million dollars a year, uh, which I'm sad to say I never did. Um, uh, and even when we were doing very well, I had 16 people working for me, so... Uh, you know, every penny that came in got spent. But um, John Costanza called me once and accused me of drying up all the work. Uh, Tom Ozakowski doesn't speak to me, hasn't for many, many years, uh, because he felt I gave away the means of production. Todd um, Klein has always been um, friendly, helpful. Uh, we trade... Um, information. It's a very healthy professional relationship. Um, but there are other letterers, letterers who worked for me, letterers who worked for the same companies as me who stabbed me in the back and um, uh, operated in somewhat underhand manner towards me. But, um, it, you know, I, I definitely recognize that I turned a sort of um, journeyman's craft into something that could become a studio um, team job. I, you know, I, I think that's, that's the accusation that's been leveled against me. I turned a craft into a job. But I did so in order to be able to do a better job. Just because you have a comic craft font doesn't mean that you're an accomplished letterer. No, and, and just because you have a pen doesn't mm -hmm. mean you're accomplished letterer either. And in one of the sort of, we used to get together 14, 15 years ago, Todd uh, proposed a letterer's lunch at San Diego. And uh, seven or eight of us, Steve Dutro, John Babcock, Todd Klein, Susie Lee, and Ozakowski and Bohalis would get together and we talked lettering, but ultimately became a vilification of comic craft and, and myself. And Todd... <laughs> <Your> dinner. <laughs> not Todd, Tom, 
Orzakowski actually said to me, you were putting Janice Chang out of work. And I turned to him and said, Tom, if you had the choice to hire Janice Chang or Todd Klein, who would you hire? And he said, well, Todd, of course. I said, you just put Janice Chang out of work. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. that's the truth of it. Nobody hired us because we were um, cheap and, and fast. We weren't cheap. We, we were at one time the, be the best paid letterers uh, at Marvel. We weren't cheap. We were good and fast. Mm -hmm. And I think that what um, uh, a lot of people confused was um, I raised this bar and I made it... Um, I, I could do a good 22-page job overnight with two or three assistants when they were still staying up till three in the morning to try to do a good job. Mm -hmm. And the quality showed. The difference showed. And we were able to do quality and quantity. And yeah. I'll, I'll never forget the month. We did 17 different X-Men books in one month. And I only remember that because we used to have a tray system. We used to have these little shelves that JG made, and it had 16 slots in it. And we got a new X-Men book in, and I couldn't find a slot for it on the X-Men uh, shelves because we'd already taken on, we were already doing 16 books. This, these are in the days of miniseries and spin-offs and X-Men Unlimited. And it really uh, struck me as amazing that, you know, Five years previously, I would never have thought that anyone other than Tom Oskowski would letter the X-Men. And here were we lettering every single X-Men book. Mm -hmm. um, too many, some might say. <laughs> um, but I honestly believe that it's because we were producing the best work in the fastest time. Not that there weren't other fast letters out there, but there were, there were guys hacking it out with a pen overnight and it was starting to show because if you don't get enough sleep your eyes get tired your hand gets tired and your lettering doesn't look consistent mm -hmm. computers don't get tired in the beginning were you also offering the fonts to publishers or were you solely a studio offering the the production of of the lettering we were a studio offering services but um from day one the, the, the moment i hired uh john rochelle I talked to him about the fact that I wanted to sell fonts. Um, because, just to take you back to something I said earlier, sheets of Letraset were very expensive. And Letraset uh, sold a lot of sheets. <laughs> and the thing about a font is you only have to buy it once. But Letraset, you used to have to buy a new sheet every time you ran out. Sure. So we used to spend a lot of money in Marvel UK on, on Letraset. I never forgot how expensive sheets of lettering were. So I always knew that there would be a market for fonts, even when we only just started making them and there weren't that many foundries selling fonts. So I also confidently predicted that once Marvel and DC figured out what I was doing and how I was doing it, they would do it. Can you explain to people what Letraset is? I have is? to explain what Letraset is. Yeah, I mean, it, it's I'm that seriously. old. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> we, we all are, my man. We all are. Well, sheets of Letraset were sort of plastic sheets with um, an alphabet of type styles, uh, one particular type style. And um, if you bought a sheet of uh, Arnold Bocklin. You also had to pick what point size you were purchasing. So if you picked, if you wanted it big and you didn't want to have to photograph it and change the size of it, you had to pick the point size you were working with. The danger being the bigger the point size, the fewer letters you get on the sheet. <laughs> and each sheet, which was about, I'd say about 10 inches by 9 inches, maybe 12 by 9, was a big sheet of lettering. And once you had rubbed down each letter, that was it. You couldn't really reuse those letters. Mm -hmm. yep. did, each did, sheet did, cost about 
twelve dollars. Did you have your own personal burnishing tool? I know I had mine. <laughs> I, I had several, and we used to t- tape, put a piece of tape around it, and put our initials on them. Oh, absolutely! Because they, it, it, they were expensive. Burnishes <laughs> were expensive. I bet you. I bet you could sell those on eBay. <laughs> if, uh, if I still had mine, I, I would put it in a in a frame. Going back uh, a little bit to, to something you said earlier about um, how you knew that if you hadn't done it, that the publishers would, and and that's, you know, it's interesting to me looking back at it now. I mean, it it was just a natural evolution of technology. Well, John Byrne was the first person that made me sure that that was what was going to happen. John Byrne started lettering Namor and another book at the time can't remember what it was but he was doing two books for Marvel and he started lettering them initially he did he did a font based on Mike Heisler's lettering until Mike Heisler asked him for some money (laughs) so he did a font based on Jack Morelli's lettering and made an arrangement with Jack um, and has used that font ever since Uh, he also created a font based on Dave Gibbons lettering until Dave told him to cut it out uh, that was used to letter the first Hellboy story that John Byrne wrote. So when I saw that an artist was actually looking into this and uh, enabling him to control lettering, which I think was very significant for John Byrne, mm-hmm. um, I actually spoke to Byrne at San Diego that year and asked him how he was doing it and what program he was using. And he was using, I think, Font Lab or Font Studio at the time. So that was... Uh, a big um, clue to me that I'd better, you know, get on the beam or, or be put out of business. And I definitely saw that that would lead to the situation that it has led to, which it means that anyone that has uh, the desire to do, to become a comic book director can become one quite quickly if he's determined and prepared to learn. Um, I tried to train a lot of hand letters, pen letters at Marvel UK. Not everybody could do it. A lot of people could, but not everybody. And not everybody wanted to continue to do it. And again, this is sort of what uh, Tom Ozakowski accused me of, was taking a, taking a skill out of the hands of a skilled craftsman and putting it in the hands of an untrained artisan. Sure. I think that's really the issue. In fact, if you go to Greg... Rucker's live journal. There was a whole <laughs> debate this week about that. We we did definitely read it, Greg. Greg's been on our show a few times, and and uh, uh, we we happened to get wind of that, and and it was an interesting. I mean, uh, that that sort of brings up my next question: is when you see comic craft on a book, what does that mean? As opposed, you know, does that mean that comic craft as the studio has lettered that book, or does it mean that? that publisher has licensed the No, it means that we've been involved. It means that um, I have uh, two people working full-time lettering. Um, We, As I said earlier, we were up to as many as, I think we had 14 people lettering, including myself and John. Uh, Two people doing design work at and at least one doing administrative work because once you get past 10 employees Mm -hmm. you're an employer you've got to have somebody helping you with payroll human resources you name it so that was not a tenable position I had too many people but when I had 14 people Dave Lamphere basically ran a small studio within our studio lettering all of the acclaimed books um, for Fabian Nicieza so Dave would be involved in the lettering work. I would be involved in the lettering work. I basically did titles almost all week long. I did title pages, tag pages. I was involved in the design of the gatefolds that Marvel had in the late 90s. Uh, JG and I did logo designs. Um, But also we started building our font catalog that we sold online. And we were one of the very first comic book companies that had a website presence uh, as far back as 1995, I think. So when you see the Comic Craft credit on a book, uh, I, AG or I have done the title. You know, we, we sort of specialize in the designy aspects of comic book lettering. If uh, somebody's name is after the Comic Craft Studio credit, then he did that book. We barely chop up a book 
over three or four people unless it's needed literally overnight. We split it into two. Mm-hmm. Um, it's become a lot easier to work faster because letters used to have to transcribe the script. We were sent hard copies, not files, word files. These days, we refuse to work from anything that's not available electronically. A single individual will work on a book and usually keep, stay on a title. Just It's the same as it was 15 years ago when pen letters were working. Jimmy uh, Betancourt, who's worked for me now nine years, um, has uh, he works on Wallace and Gromit. He does all the Wallace and Gromit lettering. He works on uh, Wolverine, the new Jeff Loeb, Simone Bianchi series. Um, Albert Deshane, who's worked for me 10 or 11 years, I think, uh, letters Supergirl, Superman, JG letters Astro City, um, and I sit outside of my hammock drinking martinis. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Kind of the reason I uh, I asked is because I know, you know, because of uh, the live journal, Greg's live journal coming, and, and I think that's a lot of the confusion still to this day is that people assume, you know, just because... Uh, th- someone may use your fonts. That doesn't mean comic crap's involved in the production. Uh, you know, no, it doesn't. And in fact, there's way more books out there lettered with comic craft fonts, but not lettered by comic craft. Right. Um, and uh, that sort of it's, it's a great shame. I mean, I see that Dave Lamphere, who worked for me many years, uh, works for Marvel now and uses fonts that he's purchased from us. Now, Dave is a very talented uh, pen letterer and has created some of his own fonts that are used at CrossGen, but chooses to use our fonts rather than create his own. And I think that's a great shame that mm-hmm. um, there are letters out there who are not developing that part of the skill, mm-hmm. um, creating fonts using their own fonts rather than using our fonts. I'm very glad that there are customers, but on the other hand, I'd like to see more innovation. You know, Todd Klein creates all of his own fonts. We created his first font, his hand lettering font. Um, but he's created many of his own. Um, Eliopoulos also has created uh, a number of his own fonts. But we sort of led the field in the amount of fonts that we have in our catalog. Because JG and I are both enthusiastic about that part of the uh, creative side. Sure, you, you've worked with some amazing creators to develop develop their own signature fonts. Who are yeah, who are yeah. who are some of those those keystone creators that you've worked with? Well, I can uh, tell you exclusively that Dave Sim called me this week and wants us to develop um, a range of fonts based on his lettering. Wow! All right, that's um, exciting. He's been using our Joe Cubit font. Joe Cubit approached us three or four years ago, and we created a font for him. Uh, Adam Cubitt, Tim Sale, Jim Lee, Joe Madureira, J. Scott Campbell, Paul Smith, Tim Sale. The fonts we created for him are used on the Heroes TV show. We have a font, we made a font for Brian Bolland recently for his Art of Brian Bolland book, and we'll be releasing that this year. Uh, Fraser Irving has asked us for a font for Gutsville. Okay. We created the official Astro City font. Um, I think that's about it. Uh, I, I have to. I have to be honest. The the around comics logo. The uh, it, it's the 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 tagline is in Comic Craft Jim Lee. <laughs> Jim Lee, yeah. Yes, and that's it is. actually a nice font. It's funny because um, Jim said to me, well, "I can't letter." And I said, "Don't worry." And it does look like he lettered it. If you've seen his handwriting or right, his signature, sure. But he couldn't letter like that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we'd uh, like to thank Richard Starkings for talking with us this evening. We're going to cut this one up into two episodes. So he, come had back a, he had a lot to say. I didn't expect the uh, the British comics history lesson that we got in oh. the first episode. That was chatty. Crazy. That guy. He's uh, he's an interesting guy, man. I didn't realize his history and and uh, what all he's been doing for the last twenty years. But hello, I'm Richard Starkings, <clears throat> and this is a history of British creators and comics. Yeah, no kidding. So that was uh, that was fantastic. So you got a uh, you got a great taste of that. We're gonna get into more about Hip Flask and the Elephant Men here in a couple days. So please uh, come back and revisit us for part two. Deuce. But Deuce Starkings. <laughs> Deuce Starkings Machina. 
There you go. Something like that. Something. All right. Well, until then, I would uh, please ask you to help us spread the around comics love. There's a few different ways you can do that. You can take us up on our listener LCS challenge by uh, printing out our flyer and displaying that in your local comic shop. Just ask your local comic shop manager or owner to do that. And if they do so, we'll mention both you and the shop on the show and provide a link to the shop on the website. You can become our virtual friend at comicspace.com. That's comicspace.com slash around comics. You can do the same thing at myspace.com slash around comics. And then you can do my personal favorite, which is the iTunes Music Store Review. You can be as cool as Andy Parks, Mike Norton, Steve Bryant, and many others. Uh, special thanks to, uh, is that Nito03? Nito. Uh, Nito. Nito03. Um, Arutek and Shane White left Shane us a review. Shane White, the best looking man in comics. He is a dapper young man, he is. isn't he? He's smug, though. He's very smug yeah. looking, at least in photos. But he is a talented mofo. <laughs> so he did say he looks smug. Check out all the great things that AroundComics.com has to offer. It's your source for the best in comic book news, reviews, and and opinions. We are proud members of the Comics Podcast Network. You can find more great podcasts at comicspodcasts.com. Just so everyone is aware, we post the next week's topic on Tuesdays at our forum at aroundcomics.com. And we'd like to thank InStock Trades for sponsoring the show. InStockTrades.com has both of the critically acclaimed Hip Flask hardcover editions discounted 35%. You can now follow the Eisner Award winning adventures of futuristic detective Hip Flask and the Elephant Men for just $19.47 per volume. And that is a deal. Remember that InStockTrades.com is your source for trade paperbacks, deluxe hardcovers, essentials, showcases, archives, absolute editions, omnibus editions, and more, all at great discounted prices, and all orders over $50 ship for free. And you'll hear all about uh, Hip Flask and the Elephant Men on Friday. Is that when we're going to really Probably that? Friday. Okay. I don't put a date on it, because who knows what will happen. Yeah, who knows. But in the uh, meantime, we are proud to help support the Hero Initiative. Hero creates a financial safety net for yesterday's creators who may need emergency medical aid, financial support for essentials of life, or an avenue back into paying work. It's a chance for all of us to give back something to the people who have given us so much enjoyment over the years. For more information, visit www.heroinitiative.com org or call 310-909-7809. Absolutely. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. John Suntra, Sal, of course. I'd like to thank Mark for hosting us at Dark Tower as always. Everyone have a fantastic day or two until the next episode. We'll be back again with part two of Richard Starkings. In the meantime, we'll be everywhere in and around comics. like to suggest a topic, send us your comments, or are interested in becoming a panel member, email us at info at aroundcomics.com or visit the contact us section of our website. Music for the show provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network, music.podshow.com. Views expressed in the interviews or by guests of the show are solely those of the individuals expressing them and do not reflect the opinions of Around Comics. Thank you for listening today, and remember to join us next time when the panel will change, but our mission will stay the same bringing you the very best news, reviews, and opinions in and around comics. Around Comics is a Pipe Dream production. Copyright 2007. All rights reserved. Love you, baby. Yeah.